It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Our first guest up with us today, Vinny Tolman, author of The Light After Death, a book based on his journey to heaven and back. Uh, in 2003, Vincent Tolman was found dead in the bathroom of a small restaurant. He'd been dead for over half an hour. This is an amazing story, obviously an amazing journey. Uh, Vinny, before we get going too far, where do, where do folks get this book? Uh, they can find it on Amazon. That's the the most convenient place. They can also get it through my website. But uh, yeah, Amazon's the most convenient. Okay, that's fantastic. So, Vinny, twenty years ago, you're in a fast food restaurant. You're in a restroom. You die. Tell folks what happened. I had taken a, a supplement that um, was fairly new at the time, and then me and a buddy of mine we we purchased some online uh, from overseas. And what we didn't realize is the, the, the product from overseas was a concentrated product versus a highly diluted version that we were getting in the United States. So it was, it was extremely toxic for both of us. We essentially uh, started started getting poisoned as soon as we took it. And so so you get in, you're, you're found dead. Tell, tell us about this paramedic, and then tell us, why did you feel like you died? I mean, you know, the supposedly... You know, when the brain stops, the brain activity continues a little. But what made you know for sure that you had died after this paramedic had brought you back to life? Well, when they found me, uh, when they found the body itself in the bathroom, they they did call nine one one. They got um, you know medical services there. The, the medics, it was a three man team, two two veterans and one rookie. Uh, the two veterans essentially processed the scene. They pronounced the body dead. They did attempt preliminary resuscitations, but nothing happened. They weren't able to get any any signs of life. So they did bag the body. They put it in the back of an ambulance. They, they took their time about it, did a bunch of paperwork, and they left the scene about 45 minutes, 30, 45 minutes after they got there, which uh, at the time they, they estimate I was at least dead 45 minutes when they found it, found the body. And, and from that point, they were taking the body to turn it into the medical examiner when this rookie medic who was sitting in the back of the ambulance staring at this body bag, he felt this premonition or this intuition tell him that this one wasn't all the way gone, that he needed to try to resuscitate it even further. So he did. He he broke protocol, which, you know, got him in a lot of trouble. But he broke protocol, unzipped the body bag, and attempted the resuscitation. He, he, he hooked up a defib machine to uh, the body itself, and after the first round of shocks, there was no activity. Second round of shocks, there was a single heartbeat, and then then back to a flat line. And then on the third round of shocks, they were able to get a, a steady, faint heartbeat to to register. And at that point, they had they were they were driving on the road to the medical examiner. It had taken them right by a hospital, so they were right by a hospital when that happened. They were able to take the body and turn it into the hospital. And, and the hospital was able to take it from there. Well, so I was legally dead, for sure, yeah. Well, let me ask you this question before. I want to get to your experiences at, when you passed. Have you talked to this young paramedic ever since? 
I did. So, so right after it happened, we went to lunch and, um, and I wanted to thank him. I wanted to do some grand gesture because, you know, from my point of view, I was watching everything that happened and I saw him, uh, you know, break protocol and, and do something that could have got him fired, but did it because he felt this, this strong prompting. And, um, I wanted to do something really nice for him and he wouldn't let me. He was, he just said, nope, it was part of my job, and I was doing what I felt was the right thing to do. And later he did become a fireman. He's now a fireman. He's been a fireman for 20 years now. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay, so you pass away. What is the single most important thing you learn from death? The, the biggest thing I took away from it is, is the fact that here is the pit stop. Life here is the pit stop that our, our actual existence it was existing long before here and exists forever after here. And, you know, here is the pit stop here. We tend to get tunnel vision about what's going on around us, and we, we get so caught up in our world, in our point of views, and we, we tend to forget uh, to step back and, and realize that this is just a pit stop here. Did you consider yourself religious or Christian before? Did you have any religious affiliation? I was raised uh, evangelical, so I was raised on the on the Christian side of things and and pretty strict side of things. And so I did find myself with that paradigm when I went there. I still am Christian. I, I still um, I definitely self-identify as Christian myself. But I I do I have opened up a lot of ideas that I didn't necessarily agree or understand before my experience. That is different than than how I believe then that I believe now though yeah so it's definitely g- different now give me a, give me an example of one thing you had uh, pre existing beliefs before and after now what's what's one that's changed with this experience well like for instance when it was portrayed to me that I could go to this heaven space you know kind of our home that's where we all come from uh, when that was portrayed to me I said well I can just go there you know I'm already Christian I've I've, I've been saved and I've taken Christ as my savior and 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 my guide, who a gentleman was helping me through this process of transitioning, he just kind of laughed at lovingly and said, well, that's beautiful, and, and I love that you did that, but there's, there's more we've got to understand and, and go through for you to get there. So that was the first thing that, that, you know, in Christianity, we get the truth, but we get the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's quite a bit more we have to understand to get there. And, um, and so I had to go through that process. Vinny, who was the who was the guide? Did you is this someone that you had some familial connection or some other connection or a celestial connection uh, that you you understood who they were when you met them? Well, when I first uh, met him uh, through the experience, I didn't know who he was, but I did know him. Like I knew him. I didn't know how I knew him. I had no memory of him. I'd never seen him or met him or any type of experience with him prior to this, but I, I just had like a knowing inside of me that I knew him. Now, you know, fast forward after I come back and I wake up from my coma, um, I'm going about my life and describing this guy to everyone around me, this guy who kind of led me on my journey, uh, so much so that this, this gal I was dating who became my wife, we were at this, this little presentation at a little town in Wyoming, and we see this picture come up, and she instantly knew that this picture was my guide. Wow. And without me even looking, she, she reached over and she's like, that's your guy. That's the guy you've been describing to me for like seven months. And, and uh, I look up and sure enough, it, it definitely was him. Definitely was him. Interesting. And, that's really fascinating. 
Do you have any spe- specific recollect- recollection of seeing a heavily being, a memory of actions or their attributes? Yes. So, so this guy, Drake, who was my guy, um, he, he himself was very heavenly himself. Mm-hmm. But I did get to actually experience that there are real angels. There are real workers that, that facilitate the function of heaven, the function of our life and experiences. And these are real, very real. They're, they're more real than we are, in fact, more real than this existence here. And, um, and they want to help everybody. They want to be helping everybody as much as we, they can. Uh, but we have to ask them very much so. There's this process that we have to ask for the help, for the help to show up. Um, kind of like the scriptures, how they say, knock and the door shall be opened. Uh, we have to knock first. And those, those angels are very real. Fantastic. Well, let me ask you this. So, let's doing a little reading about you. We're with, by the way, folks, we're with Vinnie Tolman. He wrote a fantastic book called The Light After Death. You can go buy it at Amazon.com. And it's about his journey to heaven and back. Uh, Vinnie, what took you so long to write the book? So, I've been sharing the experience verbally for um, a good 15 years to, to many church groups and many different um, clergy associations and religions. And, and uh, just as a, a guest speaker at a lot of these churches I've been, and then in small groups too, I've shared it quite a bit. And every single time I'd share it, people would always ask me, hey, are you going to turn this into a book? You need to do a book. And um, I, I started building this list of people who you know, wanted me to follow up one day when I had a book to, to tell them so they could get it, um, so that they could have a written version of my experience. And, and so just over, over the years, because of demand there, but also because I felt a strong calling within that it was time to start uh, working on, on actually writing and documenting the experience. And so it took me a few years, but I, I've been sharing it ever since it happened from the very beginning. Let me ask you this question. So let's say you meet your, you're, you're going to meet your maker sometime you know, within the next four or five decades. We're, we're going we're to give you a li- long lifespan, Vinny, okay? <laughs> If he asked you, Vinny, did you relay what you saw accurately and truthfully to your brothers and sisters here on Earth? Do you feel comfortable you're doing that as accurately as you possibly can for what you can remember? Because I'm sure, unfortunately, you didn't get to take a notebook when you were up there for 90 minutes, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, <laughs> yeah exactly. Sam, Sam and I are getting older. We would forget a lot of stuff and think, damn, I wish I had a notebook. But do you feel, do you, do you feel you're in that position with that way? I do. I, I feel that I've done done my due diligence. I've actually gone under hypnosis to see if the experience changes in any way. And actually it's the same, same exact experience, whether I'm, I'm fully conscious or under hypnosis, which is great. That's awesome. You know, I feel very comfortable in that. Um, at the same time, um, I did get the experience of sharing this, the full experience with, with a good friend, um, just a few years after it happened. And then just recently he got the book and when he got it, he, he did explain, he, he's like, that's amazing that it hasn't changed in all these years that I've known you. And, and it's because it's, it's one of these memories that doesn't fade. It really doesn't. Never has faded, even to an inkling. We have and, to- and it's funny, yeah, it's funny that anybody who's had this kind of experience, right. you see a very common thread that it doesn't really change for them at all. We have, we have less than two minutes left here. Um, these experiences, look, the way a man changes in this life is by really having a change of heart. You know, mm-hmm. people can give lip service. My sense is that you've had a change of heart. 
And how did that experience 20 years ago change your heart and the direction of your life and your day-to-day activities? Well, it definitely completely changed how I lived my life, completely changed it. I was very um, finance-oriented and career-oriented before the experience. And now I have those things, but it's not my orientation or my focus. My focus is my family and the relationships I have around me and my, my personal relationship with my creator. That's a very, very important relationship for me. Uh, Vinny, before we go, we have just a a little less than a minute left here. What is the one thing you'd like to leave the audience with? What should people take away if they're considering reading your book and and purchasing it and what you learned that should be passed on? The biggest thing that I took from my experience is a knowledge, a true knowledge, that every single one of us is divinely loved exactly how we are not who we're going to be or who we want to be, but exactly how we are. We are divinely loved, and and we are the, the divine masterwork of the Creator. The Creator loves us so much that the entire existence has been created for us. It's, it's a divine, pristine love that's there for us. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Vincent Tolman, author of Light After Death. Folks, you can get his book at Amazon.com. Breaking Battlegrounds we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, are you in concern with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office? I certainly am. You need to consider investing with Invest Y Refi. They offer a secure collateralized portfolio uh, with an up to 10.25% rate of return. This is a great way to secure your money. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can use it to create uh, annual income. You can use it to compound. It is a fantastic product. We certainly recommend that you go on their website right now, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you to secure your financial future. And moving on now, Chuck, for our next guest, we are very excited to have on the program someone uh, who has some experience relevant to maybe one of the great, the great issue of our time at this moment. Lincoln Schertz uh, has over two decades of experience in the consulting industry. He is the founder of Legislative Insight Consulting. But before that, he served in the U.S. military as a tank commander. And given what's going on in Ukraine and us sending tanks, we wanted to give our audience a chance to hear from somebody what it will take to actually put U.S. tanks on the battlefield in Ukraine and how difficult that really is going to be. Exactly. So, Lincoln, yesterday or two days ago, the United States Secretary of Army, Christine Warmoth, said, we're looking at what's the fastest way we can get tanks to the Ukrainians. Now, the U.S. has promised 31 M1 Abram tanks to Ukraine. We're looking at what's the fastest way we can get the tanks to them. It's not going to be a matter of weeks. Then she adds this, none of the options that we're exploring are weeks or two months. There are longer timelines involved, but I think there are options that are less than two years, less than a year and a half. Okay, so let's say we go get these tanks to them in a year. Best case scenario, it sounds like right now from Christine. How long does it take to train a crew to to operate one of these tanks? It's not like doing a moped in the Bahamas on a cruise line. (laughs) Chuck, first, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be on with you guys. I think you're right. At least Christine's got one thing right. You know, uh, as when I was in the military, we would often deploy to various locations throughout the United States. And simply getting a well-trained army to deploy 
with armored vehicles would take us the better part of two months simply to get them on train, get them to the location, and get them off train. So I can only imagine what the effort's going to be to get those tanks overseas into Ukraine. Um, I can give you my experience uh, serving active duty for four years with the 3rd Armored Cav Regiment. Uh, I spent about 20 weeks doing just the basic training on the tanks, so that gives you basic proficiency. 20 weeks, 70, tw- 20 weeks, you said? 20 weeks, and that's just basic proficiency. And then in any given calendar year, we would be spending anywhere from seven to eight months out of the year um, doing field training exercises uh, in the case that we were ever going to be deployed. So it's a fairly extensive process to get trained on these tanks. Like I said, simply spending 20 weeks to learn what the buttons mean was the first step. Um, and keep in mind, this is a 72-ton vehicle uh, with a turret that can swivel and take your head off if you're the driver. Um, you're loading 80-pound uh, rounds into the chamber uh, and firing those rounds downrange with a 50 cal and a 257 cal on top. I mean, this is a very deadly machine. takes a lot of training, and there is a lot of that kind of risk associated with doing those things wrong. Well, so it, it's going to be a pretty expensive operation for these folks to get trained. And keep in mind, the minute they get, they're not going to be able to pre-train before they get the tank. So once the tanks get there, they're going to actually have to do the battleground training. So there's no like, so it's not vehicle. like, so it's not like an airline where they take you to a simulator. So like Dallas, you know, Southwest takes everybody to Dallas for simulator training. Is there anything do, like that? They do have some simulator training. Most of that's for proficiency in using the weapon system. But in terms of actually driving the tank, repairing the tank, if you throw track or have any sort of damage to the tank figuring out the loading mechanisms, working on the actual nuts and bolts of the tank. Uh, it's a pretty significant training exercise. And keep in mind, um, I hate to say that the M1A2 Abrams is like a Ferrari, but it is. These things drop engines like crazy. It is a jet-propelled engine. And so in addition to learning how to actually maneuver the tank, you also have to become, uh, become proficient on repairing the tank because when you're out in a field environment, it is not as though you have a full mechanic team that's riding with you. Well, it, crew members have become the mechanics. It, it's basically like a ballet in a box it, for the tank crew, right? I mean, you, you have to have an incredible level of coordination among the, the individuals that are inside that tank. Yeah, I mean, we oftentimes in that environment, we would be with the same crew for at least two years. And the reason for that is, as you mentioned, it's, it's coordinated dance. Um, the driver has to be well synced with the tank commander. And certainly the loader and the gunner on the tank, which are the, the, the other two crew members, have to be well seen. The loader is the one that's providing shells to the gunner. The gunner cannot fire that gun until he gets a shell from the loader. And that person's lifting 80-pound shells out of, the, out of the tank, putting it into the chamber, and then firing, getting rid of the aft cap, which is what's left after you fire the shell, and loading another one. A proficient tank crew can load and unload around in about two seconds. Uh, if you're not proficient, that's taking you about 10 seconds. And in a field environment, those eight seconds certainly do matter. So how many shells are in an M1 tank? How many shells can they can they go on a on a Fully loaded, you're about 100 shells. And that's, that's, and that's for the major weapon system, right? So that's for the 120-millimeter main cannon of the tank. And then you've got a 50 cal that sits on top that's uh, administered by uh, the tank commander as well. Can you imagine – now – Folks, Lincoln has a very youthful-looking face, but he's not a young man anymore. Even though he not ha- anymore. He, even though he skis a lot, he's not a young man. <laughs> Can you imagine, Lincoln? What would go through your mind when you were training if you had to do this, like after thirty days of training, and then be in the field and have a bunch of Russian tanks firing at you? 
Yeah, it would be a very scary environment. I will tell you, we would, as I mentioned, during just our training exercises, we'd often go to Death Valley out to the National Training Center. And just getting the tanks there, getting situated, and keep in mind, uh, warfare doesn't just happen during the daylight. You also have to become proficient at using the nighttime vision on these vehicles. It's a 72-ton piece of equipment uh, that, if you screw up, can kill everyone on the tank. And even for well-trained uh, crew members, pretty much every single cycle in which we'd go to Death Valley, there would be situations where someone would be seriously critically injured or even killed uh, by the tanks because of their inability to appropriately administer the tank as it's intended to be used. It's, mistakes are deadly when you're dealing with 72 tons of, of uh, depleted uranium steel. What what are the most uh, what are the most obvious injuries that the Ukrainians, once they start training, can run into? What, what, what are the mistakes they can make that can harm just the crew on the tank? So it's kind of interesting because these are probably one of the most sophisticated land fighting machines that exist. At the same token, you have a person who's sitting on top of the turret guiding the tank. So you have a driver that sits down underneath the turret who's driving the tank, but the commands for the driving is done through the tank commander. And the tank commander actually had his head exposed out of the turret. Uh, if that tank rolls, goes into a ditch, um, the individual who's sitting on top of the tank can be very seriously harmed. Well, and, and um, the, the driver, as I understand it, Lincoln, has only a very, very small viewing prism. It's a very small viewing prism done through a periscope. So you're actually sitting underneath the surface of the tank in something equivalent in size to a coffin. It's got a T-bar steering mechanism similar to like a motorcycle. And you're actually looking through a periscope that comes up to look out, which is why you have to have the tank commander who's actually giving you directional advice because your field of vision is extremely limited. And in large part, you're driving essentially blind other than the commands that you're receiving from the tank commander who sits on top. Wow, that's incredible. Folks, Breaking Battlegrounds is going to be coming back in just a moment with more from Lincoln Shirts uh, about how we're going to be able to deploy these tanks to uh, the battlefield in Ukraine, how long that's going to take. Make sure you check us out, breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Tell your friends, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss that episode. Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. You deserve a home that's beautiful and stylish. At Overstock, you don't have to choose between low prices and quality. Find new, on-trend home goods that reflect your taste and don't compromise on value. You can be proud of your home and design a space where you feel like you, all under budget. Plus, you get free shipping on everything in the continental United States. Overstock is where quality furniture and decor cost less. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. Check us out at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Right, right now, more with Lincoln Shirts, former U.S. military tank commander. How are we going to get tanks to Afghanistan? How long it's going to take? Lincoln, you're you're a general over this process. You're you, first of all, you get the you got to get the tanks there. Chuck, Chuck just promoted you. Uh, you promoted. That was a hell of a that, pay grading. That, yeah. That's what happens when you come on Breaking Battlegrounds. <laughs> Join the military, see the world. That's my philosophy here. So you're going out there, seeing the world. You're over this. First of all, we got to get the tanks there. Okay. So once we get there, what would if you were over this process? What do you feel the steps need to be made, and what's the timeline? Again, this is, you know, you're guesstimating here, but based on your experience, what is the process and the timeline that these crews would be ready to take these 31 tanks, plus what they're getting from Poland and Germany, and be able to go out and participate in an offensive? 
you know, and Chuck, that presumes that we're going to care about the basic safety of the soldier. If that's kind of an underpinning to the question, you're going to be six to eight months at the bare minimum to just have functional use of the tank. So first and foremost, obviously, you're going to be talking about tank safety because you got to keep in mind, you've got four crew members on this tank. You lose any of them and you are now a tank that cannot operate. You can't operate without a driver, a loader, tank commander or a gunner. And so obviously just making sure that everyone's safe in that environment is kind of first and foremost. Secondarily, basic operating skills, how to drive the vehicle, how to load shells into the vehicle. These static charge can set off one of these shells inside the tank turret. So from that standpoint, this is, you know, you're dealing with a 100-pound piece of ammunition sitting in a tank turret loaded with another 100 shells behind you. The last thing you want is a miscalculation on loading one of these shells that can go off based on literally a static charge within the turret. Uh, then third, obviously, your ability to use the weapon system on the tank, uh, not only to not endanger other individuals on the battlefield with you, but also not to endanger yourself. Fourth, basic crew operations, making sure that you don't know how to navigate the tank, making sure that you know how to repair the tank, because a uh, tank that goes down in the battlefield is a sitting dock. And as much as they do have armor on them, if you're sitting in a... Uh, Installed location, you, you're literally setting yourself up for a pretty significant uh, opportunity to be killed in that environment. So, I mean, there's all of these things that you've got to consider. It's not, hey, can I drive this thing? It's, do I know how to use the weapon system? Do I know the basic safety? Do I know how to repair this thing in a battlefield environment? Um, those are all things that have to be learned. Yes, some of that can happen concurrently. Uh, but generally speaking, at a very minimum, you're going to be six months just to bit, get the basics on how to use the tank that it will not have any sort of uh, impact on proficiency at using that that weapon system. Well, this, the most advanced weapon system in the world when it comes to battlefield. Well, this explains, based on that limited training, they were, they've talked about Russian troops are not well-trained, why they've lost 1,500 tanks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. These And these vehicles are, they are not easy to keep up. Yes, they are robust, but you're driving... Um, them in a robust fashion in a wartime environment. They're throwing tracks. They're blowing engines. Well, they're, I mean, there are significant things that can go wrong. One of the issues, to too, seems to be that in a drone environment, the top armor on tanks is always one of the more vulnerable parts. If you're not moving, you're in real danger. Absolutely. That's why I was saying sometimes when you think about this, you just think about proficiency in using it. Almost equally as important as the proficiency in repairing the tank so that you're not a sitting duck in a war environment. It's it's amazing. I think people just assume we can just put these things on a ship, take them overseas, and and hand them to folks. That is clearly not the case. They do assume that. That's why we're having Lincoln on the show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I think there is absolutely the assumption that the weapon system shows up and people know how to use it, and that's absolutely not going to be the case. Uh, What scares me about that is what you're going to have happen is probably that very situation. They're going to be throwing untrained individuals into these very advanced weapon systems who are going to have a significant risk of self-harm, to be honest with you. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lincoln Shirts. We really appreciate having you on the program uh, to be able to inform viewers about the challenges of deploying some of these armored systems over to Ukraine. It's not easy, folks, and it's not going to happen quickly. So, Lincoln, thank you so much for joining us today. Gentlemen, have a great day. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, folks, uh, if you are looking for an investment opportunity, maybe for your IRA, you want a fixed, 
high rate of return. We have got the product for you, and we've been encouraging you for months now, uh, telling you to call our friends at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI24. You can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. You have a great deal of flexibility, whether you want to take monthly income, whether you want to compound that income. There's a fantastic opportunity here for folks to secure their financial future in the midst of a chaotic and unpredictable stock market being driven by some really oddball news from the press these days, Chuck. So, folks, go there. Get that Get that. Get your money secured. Don't put it at, at risk of Joe Biden and his nutball regime. And folks, Breaking Battlegrounds coming back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. Um, yesterday, Kylie and I had the opportunity to go down to Tucson, um, where former Governor Asa Hutchison, a former guest on the show and friend, was down there holding a Summit Solution uh, conference. And some really interesting topics came out about it. And um, we're going to right now play that interview, and then Sam and I are going to have some comments over on it. Go ahead, Jeremy. Welcome, Governor Hutchison, and welcome to Arizona. Well, it's good to be back to Arizona. It's been a wonderful trip here. I never thought I'd see snow uh, on this trip, but I did. We do get it sometimes. I don't think people realize how high we are in elevation. There's a great quote by Roger Payne, who's a biologist, and he said, any observant local knows more than any visiting scientist. Always no exceptions. You came out here, a a successful governor of Arkansas. You hear about your your constituency out there in Arkansas and other states. They hear about illegal immigration. What do you think they don't realize not really visiting here? Now you've been to the border. You've talked to people it affects. Well, they don't don't realize the vastness of the border. Correct. You know, when you talk about a border wall, they think that's uh, the simple solution. But, of course, as I saw yesterday when I went to the border wall, uh, that you have to have Border Patrol that responds to uh, the break-ins that we have or, or the rope that goes over the top of the, la- uh, of the wall. Uh, so you have to have resources. You have to have technology in addition to it. The difficulty of the terrain and the gaps uh, in our border, uh, the Tohono O'odham uh, Indian Reservation, as an example, is brought up that you, know, you can't build a wall through that uh, reservation. Uh, and you've got uh, enforcement challenges there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, unless you're here, you don't see those things. You don't see the incredible work that the Border Patrol is doing and the cooperation with the local communities and local law enforcement. So those are some of the things that you see. Probably the thing that you would, that they would be alarmed at the most is that as you walk along the wall, you see... Uh, incredible millions of dollars of resources sitting along the wall, steel frames, uh, uh, electric, uh, electricity that can be put into the lighting systems. All of these things are resources that are there that cost millions of dollars that have been stopped in building the wall and putting the resources there because 
of this administration just saying we don't want to follow what uh, the previous president did in terms of, of increasing that enforcement and building that wall. You're here doing a solution summit. What are some solutions you heard today that you thought made great common sense? Well, uh, a number of them. Uh, first of all, uh, whenever you look at uh, the reform of the asylum system, uh, where you can quickly determine the asylum claim rather than le release them into the United States, uh, where the asylum claim has to go through the port of entry versus they can come anywhere in the border and claim asylum, let it go in an organized fashion through the port of entry. Uh, the uh, requirement that the asylum seekers uh, from Central and South America go to the first safe country versus transiting those countries just to get to the United States, which really converts them into an economic migrant. That policy should change. Uh, we need to reform our asylum uh, laws uh, in that regard. So those are some good ideas that came out. Uh, it's also the uh, what struck me is the need for resources with the Border Patrol, uh, both in terms of their recruitment efforts for new workers, uh, but also uh, just simply the number that they're pulled away to man, for example, uh, the checkpoint, the inland right. checkpoint. Well, that pulls them off the border. We need to be able to do both. Uh, both are important, and so we need to put those resources in there. You know, and then really on the other side, too, I thought it struck me that uh, with we can't uh, have enough addiction counselings for the drug problems that we have. We've got to put more money actually into the preventive effort and the education efforts of our young people. And I've put this in perspective over the last 20 years. Those funds have been reduced. We have a less commitment to uh, educating our young people. And and obviously, if we're looking at drugs coming across the border, if we can reduce the demand, that helps as well. So all of those ideas uh, were coming out of this solution summit, along with many more. There was a sad comment they made that youth die now more in Pima County, where we're at now, Tucson, of fentanyl overdoses and car accidents. Yes, and that is true here in Pima County, but it is true across well, many, many parts many, of many the United counties. States. And you know, I've uh, seen the devastation of methamphetamine. I've seen uh, the difficulty of all of the opiate drugs. But whenever you look at what we're facing with fentanyl, someone described this as a, a weapon of mass destruction. And uh, it is. Uh, it is something that we have to focus on. And what a lot of the uh, panelists said today is, really, it's a matter of will. And the United States is an incredibly great country. We can solve problems. I illustrated some of the big challenges and problems that we've solved in the past. Let's focus, put our will behind this, and we can make a difference that saves lives. I thought it was interesting. The congresswoman during the discussion, they asked, well, how many border agents do you think you need? And he, the border agent, the commander, said, I don't know. No one's ever asked. Let me get exactly. back with you. It seems like an answer we should have ready to go, right? Well, How many do you need? Those are questions that uh, we started asking and, you know, how many do you need, but also what's the definition of operational control? Correct. Uh, and, you know, uh, to most Americans, it would mean that no one gets in illegally. Well, you know, I think if we had operational control and diminished that number to some de minimis amount or some manageable amount, 
then that's that's good operational control. Well, you may have a point earlier when people say that they usually have not been out in the West. Yeah, there is a lot of land. I mean, it's just, and, and you really have to look at probably one metric is how long does it take you to respond? Correct. You know, do you have enough resources there where the border control can respond within thirty minutes or fifteen minutes? You know, what's the metric there? And I think that gives you operational control. Talk a little bit quickly as we end here about what you want to do with the cartels. You want to designate them as a terrorist organization, correct? That's right. And uh, that's a little bit controversial. But uh, I believe that whenever we designated uh, some of the the FARC and Columbia uh, as uh, foreign terrorist organizations, that brought the tools in that we needed to uh, dismantle them and to diminish their strength. The same thing is true for the cartels in Mexico. They're, they're foreign organizations. They're committing terrorist acts, which is kidnapping, extortion. And then they're a threat to the United States of America. Absolutely. So let's designate them, and that will, in and of itself, help give us more tools at the federal level to address this crisis that we have. Well, it reminds me of the old Harrison Ford movie. We're both old enough to remember the Tom Clancy book, Clear and Present Danger. And the cartels are clearly clear and present danger to this country, no questions. And they're a clear present danger at the border, and they are also in so many different parts of the United States. They have their tentacles in the heart of America. Governor Hutchison, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for doing the summit. It was well worth being here. We appreciate your time. Thank you for covering it. Well, Sam, as always, he's engaging, he's thoughtful. Which means he probably, you know, he has a long road to go. <laughs> Without a doubt, uh, you know, bombast plays far too well in politics today. But you also, from there, had some very interesting conversation with Lacey Cooper, who was recently running for attorney general in Arizona. What were her ideas? Because she had some very she, she had a, She had um, two. I'm going to have Kylie speak on the second one. But the first one was that you... She called the port of entries America's front door, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a a nice way of framing it. She said, unless you come into this country via the port of entry, even if you're illegal, you should immediately have your asylum declined. I I love that. I I do, too. I I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, we and I I, If you're not doing that, you're you're doing something nefarious. Well, no, it's a rule. I mean, and, and, and the reality is <laughs> they know what's going on in this country. You've seen interview time and again with the illegal immigrants trying to come across our border saying, well, we understand the Biden administration's there now. And, I mean, look, they know what's going on. Right. U.S. politics probably better than most our voters, sadly, right? So there's that. And then what was the second issue she's talked about, Kylie? The second solution that she had was um, separating the judges that rule on these cases from the Department of Justice because of their influence being associated with the department. Which, honestly, look, that is, I think, I'm I'm surprised no one has tried to do that already. That's a really good idea on her part. Well, anything trying to take away anything from the Department of Justice seems to be a can of worms. I'll tell you what, too. I, I would be asking to have a rule that those judges have to live in those border counties. Where they're, yeah, I you know, agree. I, I agree. think they have to live there. They have to experience it themselves because otherwise a judge who, you know, they're ruling via Zoom from Washington uh, is doing so on an entirely political basis. You know, it's interesting. So we talked today about two really pressing problems. Um, and you and I discussed this. Look, is Ukraine as a country corrupt? Yes. Sure. Can the world in the United States allow a country like Russia, who has a long history of territorial 
desires, go and just say, uh, we want to take this country. No. At the same time, is this administration currently failed the American people 100 percent by what they're doing at the border? There's there's no 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 there is no operational control of those borders. And anybody out there who thinks that just come on out, Sam and I will take you down and introduce you to some ranchers. Well, everything the Biden administration is doing is designed to cover up the fact that they're an open borders administration. Well, I will tell you one thing yesterday. So they they had a sheriff on who has a rancher in the last two years down by the border in Arizona, they've had 14 immigrants die on his property. He said, this is the point that just really stuck out to Kylie and I. They've had 14 deaths that his grandson can now smell the difference between a dead corpse and a dead cow. Wow. Think about that. Well, you've got the case here of a rancher who shot at, apparently shot at a group of of crossers, killed one of them. He's being prosecuted for... An unprovoked attack, according to the prosecutor. The person that he allegedly shot, um, they did not find a weapon on the body. This guy said they were pointing AK-type rifles at him, and that's you know when he fired what he thought were warning shots and, and hit this guy. That's his story. But this guy, when they did find him, he didn't have a rifle. What he did have was camouflage clothing and a tactical radio. Well, this is a cartel operative. Absolutely. And not like they can pick up the gun and when he shot him and go get it and take it away. Yeah, no, I mean, the prosecutor's acting like this is some some like innocent person just coming here to get a job. Bull, bull pucky. Well, and and so back to my point about this. So there was a great um, Grabiella Hoffman, who is at Town Hall, wrote this great tweet this morning, which just sums up my opinion on everything. She said. On the one-year mark of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, several points are true. And I think she really speaks for all of us. Supporting Ukraine's triumph over Russia is not a tacit endorsement of Biden administration. I supported Ukrainian independence before it was cool. We can care about both domestic and foreign issues, not either or. U.S. taxpayer dollars should be stewarded well. All NATO members must contribute a minimum of 2% gross domestic product for defense spending and not wholly rely on the USA. Russia is not the innocent party here, and NATO didn't encroach its borders. Would you say the same thing of the Baltics? I didn't think so. Come on. And that's one thing that really alarms me about a minority on our side on the right, that they just don't seem to get. You have to be a walk um, and, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, you know, I, I think a, a precept that we should clarify for the entire world and that the U.N., uh, all these international agencies, NATO should get behind is this. There can be no physical incursion of another country's space. Period. You, you have no right to do that. Right. You have no right to take another country. Now, if, if you have the people of that area voting to join you, that should actually be allowed. So there should be some sort of if there's a true, honest referendum and the people say, hey, I don't want to be part of this country. I want to join them. I think you should leave room for that. Just remember, folks, for those of you who wonder about this border crisis, and it is a border crisis, there is a grandkid out in southern Arizona who can smell the difference between a human corpse and a cow corpse. That's how bad the situation is out here. That, that turns my stomach. Uh, that did me, too, when he said it. I mean, I don't I don't know how you excuse what's going on on our border. And I said the other day on a different program, look, this is not about people coming here to make a better life. This is about a cartel activity and turning a blind eye to it is turning a blind eye to murder, rape, human trafficking and every other ill of the world, including fentanyl and poison coming into this country. It has to be stopped. Breaking. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Have a great weekend, folks. Join us for our podcast next or you can find us on BreakingBattlegrounds.vote. 
Welcome to the podcast-only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. Folks, if you are not subscribed, make sure you do so you do not miss a single episode column. Chuck is putting out a ton of that stuff. I will hopefully contribute more on that front once we get past the election I'm running. Uh, but, but in the meantime, folks, make sure you do that and share it with your friends. We are finding people are all over the country who are really enjoying the program we have, the ability to bring on fantastic guests, and a lot of that depends on you and your willingness to download and share our content so that we can continue to grow the show. And also go to BreakingBattlegrounds.vote. We'll get find all the podcasts, everything there. So, Sam, this w- <laughs> there's so much going on in the world. I, I mean, you could do this show for five hours. It's just – but there's a woman named Emily Coors who, by the way, did not vote in 2020. Well, the, <laughs> the last name is appropriate because yeah. she looks – she sounds like she's drunk. So Emily Coors with a K, though. Um, she was a four-person of the special grand jury in Fulton County um, investigating Trump's election interference down there. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead and play this clip of Emily. Did you personally want to hear from the former president? I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. Mm. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in? I just... I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. I can see how trying to get the former president to come talk to us would have been a year in negotiation by itself. So it sounds like that was ultimately (laughs) a battle that you all decided not to wage. Exactly. That's kind of how it ended up. Was that and I'd be fascinated by what he said, but... Do you think he would have come in and said anything groundbreaking or just the same kind of thing we've heard? So at some point, you don't need to hear 50 people say the same thing. Mm. You know what I mean? At some point, you kind of start to get the gist. (laughs) You know, she's apparently enjoying the moment in the spotlight, right? A lot. But I am sure the federal prosecutor or the prosecutor in this case is just having heart palpitations. I mean, because well, she's really jeopardizing any indictments. Uh, they, look, after the performances she's put on, if you indict anything at all, you're just committing. I mean, you're, you're committing an, an, a, a completely ridiculous act at that point. This is a this is a circus. Well, and you know, and the thing is, she's giving interviews to NBC News, New York Times, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, other news outlets. You know, the ones I mentioned all want Trump indicted. Right. I mean, they can say they don't, but that would be oh, a lie, on. right? Yeah, so no. they all want indicted. She is truly. If there is the evidence to do this, she has truly um, maybe squashed that opportunity. I mean, she she said Rudy Giuliani left a Star Trek. Lindsey Graham, who we know it's personable, yeah, obviously, you know, um, she's she's gone through this. And and folks, just so you know, um, there is a great op ed actually in MSNBC by a former prosecutor who absolutely hates Trump. Um, she just absolutely despises them. And she goes on, talks about, as a federal prosecutor, everyone understood the rules. The grand jurors, like the prosecutor and the court reporter, were sworn, sworn to secrecy. Rule 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure says that must not disclose a matter occurring before the grand jury. The language includes not only the decisions of the grand jury, but also the identities of the witnesses who appear the cases is under consideration. The documents and other items produced as exhibits. I mean, she has blown this up. I, I, I mean, and I don't understand, you know, and you come to uh, find out, which, by the way, this prosecutor is like that 
this the that the prosecuting office down there had an ice cream social for the jurors. Now, look, this is a show trial. This this is a third world show trial. What they're trying to do down there, a prosecutor with a clear political agenda. I, look, I did a lot of stuff. Trump did. Was it wrong? Yeah. Was it illegal? Did it get to that level? Well, you, I, I don't know if you're going. I don't know you're if you're going to know. You're never going to have an answer. No, you're not going to hoe, and she is and, truly stained whatever they're trying to. No, accomplish and down if there. if this was a legitimate effort, I mean, if they really believe this, then this this person and the prosecutor involved uh, just you need to throw it out and start over. There's no possibility of that. I, and this thing is. This thing is an embarrassment to the entire American judicial system, what's going on right now. And it shows you how utterly partisan the prosecutors, even the judges in this system have become. Well, and I also wonder why she wants all this attention. I mean, I can't, you know, look, let's be honest. There's some very vile people on the left and the right. And I am sure she is, I mean, folks... You don't have to like her. Leave her alone. I mean, just don't, oh, no, don't I, do I that, mean, right? But there's a great thing by Molly Hemingway. The giddiness <laughs> it just kills Molly me. Molly Hemingway tweeted out a picture of this in her interview and said, I can't stop thinking about how a collection of people were so foolish and gullible that they voted this person their leader. I remember years ago a friend and a referendum failed and he said – well, apparently Utah failed the IQ test. And I think this applies to these jurors in this situation here. Uh, without any kind of a doubt. I mean, this is an, a deeply unserious person about the job who's simply giddy about being out in public and in the limelight um, and giddy about the opportunity to interact with these famous people in, in a way. But, I mean, come on. I am sorry if you have respect for the justice system. This is just embarrassing. I, I just I'm really surprised the prosecution just didn't say you, you got to just shut up. I mean, it's oh. not, I mean, but why is the prosecution holding an ice cream social for jurors? Well, because, again, this is a show trial. Yeah, that they, so I mean, you know, let's <laughs> this, anyway, this has, no, this has nothing anyway, to do with any for kind all of, of you who hate Trump and say, why does he end up not getting indicted? Call Emily. I mean, that's basically what this is going to be about. And, and don't don't think otherwise, gang. Um, and and by the way, before you bemoan that, remember these rules apply to all of us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there there is for equal protection, right? So um, because somebody goes and doesn't follow the procedures correctly, you know, don't don't blame Trump on that. It's it's hard to to say we have a legitimate legal system when things like this yeah. happen. I mean, that's really a foundational issue. So Axios had a poll out that came out today, which is really interesting to me, Sam. It says, what Americans say is the current greatest threat to U.S. public health? Number one was fentanyl, with Democrats saying 17 percent of Democrats saying it's the number one, Republicans 37 percent. That probably explains a lot of rule America, and they've right. many people who have passed away with it. Yep. Number two on the list, 21%, was obesity. Okay. Again, Democrats, 17% of Democrats feel obesity is the number one health issue, 25% of Republicans. 17% gun or firearm access. I think you already know the partisan divide. Yeah, I, I think that's like 17 to nothing. But what's amazing about it is it's the number one issue for Democrats, but only 35%. They, right. So think about that for a minute. 4% for Republicans, which is high. Um, cancer was number four at 12% with 9% of Democrats and 17% Republicans. I think the cancer is um, an interesting because the number one killers in America are heart disease and cancer. Right. 
COVID-19, 6%, 9% of Democrats view COVID-19 as the number one health problem as comparable to the 9% who view cancer, which frankly is much more <laughs> deadly than COVID-19, and then 2%. And then you have 4% unsafe roads and driving, 3% smoking and tobacco products, number 2%, 2% alcohol abuse, um, which, by the way, Kylie, would you quickly look up how many people die a year from alcohol abuse? So... Last year, 2022, which ended in August, you had about 100,000-plus people die from um, drug overdoses. Mm-hmm. You had about 40,000 from firearms. But the firearms take a majority of the press attention, probably because it's so heinous. It's, well, it's, it's, so, it's so video-worthy versus some... It's, some it's poor soul dying in right. bed. Some poor soul dying in bed. Well, in it's, it's a shark attack bedroom. type issue. It right. makes for it makes for sensational news, but it's not among the twelve leading causes of death in this country. It, I don't know exactly where it is, but come on. Another interesting point of this: nearly half of Americans, forty-seven percent, say insurers should cover transgender-related medical. But when you split it by demographics, that's seventy-seven percent of Democrats' favorite. Just sixteen percent Republicans. I'm I'm surprised about the sixteen percent, even quite frankly. Yeah, I am too. What'd you find? Okay, so in twenty twenty two there was an estimated ninety five thousand people um, who died from alcohol related emergencies or so, but, 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 but 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 about sixty eight thousand were men and twenty seven thousand were women. So again though, Democrats view gun and firearms as the number one issue, and again it's heinous what's going on, the gun violence, um, what they don't seem to understand. This is, well, Vinny Tolman, our guess, is this is really a change of heart. I'm not sure how many laws can stop it because it seems like every time we have a mass shooter, they have gotten away of breaking a bunch of laws and not well, being punished and, for it. And, and look, the punishment for a mass shooting comes so far after the crime and so far out of the limelight that, you know, there really is no connection between the crime and the punishment. And I think that's one of the things we've got to speed up the system in these cases, still give them due process. But there has to be a clear conclusion that people see this person being sent to jail for the rest of their life, this person being executed for their actions. Uh, Whatever that is, those outcomes need to be connected to the crime. So let's do this real quick. So we had over 100,000 drug overdoses 2022. How many alcohol? 95,000. 95,000. And then we had 40,000, a little over 40,000 for gun and firearm deaths. Yeah, but those tie in suicides, which are right. which are, which, which are which the are, which vast are, majority of Which that. are at least half of it. Matter of oh, fact, it's way more than half. Let's look that up real quick, Kylie, here. So it's interesting to see, again, a lot of this perception. Um, it is amazing, based on ideology, what you're scared of. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example... And if, if you see someone middle-aged or young who's wearing a mask in public, 99 out of 100 times, we're going to guess how they vote. Oh, you, yeah. You, nine, it's a, what about the one? I, I don't even – I mean I, it's, it's like it's watching – 100 out of 100. It's like watching some guy in a truck drive an American flag on him. Don't yeah. tread on me. We're, I mean, that's not voting Democrat. No, I, we know exactly <laughs> who they are. So suicide deaths – this was an article from 2022 – accounted for more than half of U.S. gun deaths. So it was 54 percent suicide by gun. 43 by another person. So fentanyl is by far, fentanyl and alcohol abuse are by far a greater well, health endangerment to Americans than guns. Alcohol is the third leading preventable caused death, which What's, on here, people, it's 1%. Well, and and, and then to, to break the gun debate down further, take away gang shootings. Yeah. So which what, are huge what, are the, what are the top two? causes of death that would um require me to read the rest of the article okay well we don't want you we don't want you to read that's a bad thing to start doing almost almost certainly cancer and heart disease one and two 
Yeah. Oh, this says third preventable per- one, per- which preventable. those are, which, it's, oh. yeah. Yeah. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for joining the program. We really appreciate you. Again, like, share, pass this around to your family and friends. You can get all of our episodes, all the information, breakingbattlegrounds.vote, and we're back on the air next week. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from godaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.